People were falling like flies around us. Because I was gay, I probably had it. One of the wards were absolutely full of young men who were dying and there was absolutely nothing we could do about it. The only two things that had really mattered to me ever in my life had both gone in just 48 hours. What would you do if a deadly virus wiped out your circle of friends and lovers? For the first time, here are the personal stories behind the HIV-AIDS pandemic. This is their story, and what happened after 82. And welcome to Best Film Ever, doing a very special behind-the-film experience today. My name is Ian. I'm Liam. I'm Ellie. And I'm Ethan. And we are really quite lucky. Um, We're going to have a a panel from the documentary After 82 joining us in just... uh, a few seconds, but I do want to talk about just kind of um, what After 82 is, and it's the story of um, the basically the, the AIDS epidemic in it from, from a UK perspective in the early to mid-80s, as told by those who survived it, as told by those who mourned those who didn't survive it. Mm-hmm. And it's just a beautiful story told with um, sympathy, told with... Um, dignity and told at times with 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 humor slight humor yeah yeah and 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 only the way that i think british people can if i'm being honest (laughs) yeah and um i just and and we're we're gonna be very lucky to be joined by the two directors steve keeble and ben lord who uh actually reached out to us which was really which was really quite quite amazing yeah and then we're gonna be joined by jonathan blake uh who if you've seen the film pride uh, he plays uh, Dominic West plays him in that film, and he's in the do- this, this documentary after eighty two, and of course uh, we'll also be joined by a gentleman called Patrick Lister Todd, who mm-hmm. um, has his own story to share as well. Which w- it's, it's moving. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I can't strongly suggest enough that you go see this film. It's available on Amazon Prime. Yeah. Uh, if you check our show notes, it'll be down there. If you haven't had a chance, definitely go 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 see this. Just never, I don't know if anybody wants to say anything really quickly before we 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 bring them in from from the waiting room. No, okay, so let's go ahead and we'll bring them in. All right, so uh, first off, we are beyond privileged to be joined by some of the production team and subjects of the documentary series After 82, which I saw on Amazon Prime, and it cost me nada to go see it because uh, it was already up there, which is fantastic, but it's up there on pretty much any platform you can pretty much uh, imagine. So uh, if we could let the, the our guests today introduce themselves, I think that would be fantastic. So uh, I'll just let you guys go ahead with that. Well, yeah, I'm Steve Keeble, and I am co-director and producer of After 82, and my partner is Ben Lord, um, co-producer and director of After 82. Okay, and then also the two subjects from the documentary? Uh, I bow to Jonathan first. Okay. Oh, no, Patrick. Anyway, uh, my name's Jonathan Blake, and uh, and I was one of the participants in... uh, in after eighty-two, and uh, I, I'm Patrick Lister Todd, and um, I, I was very privileged to be one of the participants um, uh, in the film as well. 
Well, I think uh, we all felt privileged to to, to watch the film. Yeah, um, definitely. When 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 the message came across the Twitter bow, if you will, and and I came across it and went, "Wow, this is uh, this is remarkable." I wanted to go ahead and watch it, and did pretty quickly soon after first contact, and was blown away by what I thought was just a beautiful, sympathetic, and above all, human story. Mm-hmm. of what occurred uh, during, I guess, a large part of the 1980s. And so I guess my first question off the top is for Steve and Ben, which is just, why was this the right time to tell this story? Oh, well, yeah. I basically, this had never been done before. And I was quite blown away that it had never been told before. Um, and I was... Uh, I went back to do uh, my degree to finish off. And part of it was to do a small little sort of five-minute documentary. And Ben's father, he's his friend upstairs was HIV. So I said, okay, well, if he's agreeable, we'll, we'll interview him. And yeah. we did. And from that, people just kept coming forward emailing us and saying look you know i'd like to tell my story and it was suddenly like there's an awful lot of people want to tell these stories and 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 like i said i just didn't i i I thought well this has to have been told before and and it clearly hadn't been and so we decided at that point that we would do a feature documentary and quite a few years later we've uh, you've seen the film yeah i but, just just wanted to add it's snowballed and you know yeah people coming forward telephone calls um emails um people saying oh such and such i mentioned your project and they want to um you know be interviewed and even now we still get people say like oh you, you know <laughs> wanted to be interviewed like well the film's out then it's like can you do you know it's a follow-up and it's like no not now after eight two yeah so no the same covid um so, after 22 um so so yeah but um that's how it how it started started off um but it was just um somebody um when it started out as a short um it was you know, and I haven't really, well, we haven't actually thanked him. It's Del Campbell who mentioned, you know, said, I'll oh, mention your project. And, um, you know, a lot of people have said, like, oh, I put themselves forward and want to be interviewed. Yeah. And that's. Um, Can I say something? I want to say yeah. something on camera. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I didn't think people would actually want to talk on camera, but I, I mean, I hold my hands up. I was so wrong. And. I think people just needed to tell those stories. They, yeah. 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 A real honor and privilege. Absolutely. That kind of ties nicely where I was going to go next, which is to Jonathan and then, of course, to Patrick. Um, why did you want to get involved with the project? And what was it about Steve and Ben that made them the right avenue to tell your story? Um, well, first of all, uh, I thought that it was really important that people know the history um, of the epidemic of of, of HIV and AIDS in the United Kingdom. Um, Because I think that it's a a really interesting one in terms that we have a national health service. And so that made a huge difference 
in terms of how we were supported. I mean, it wasn't always easy, um, but the fact was that, 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 that we had it and that has made a huge difference. Um, and, you know, that's testament. I was diagnosed in October 1982 um, and I'm still here. Um, and, you know, that, that is, I, I count myself as very fortunate. So I thought it was, it was really, really important. So when I heard about it, um, I just wanted to, um, to add to it. I, I felt it was, it was so important that I wanted to, uh, to, to speak. And Patrick, same sort of question. It's very much the same for me. Um, I've, I'm not HIV positive. And at the time, as, as you saw from the documentary, um, at that time, I was in the Royal Navy, uh, living a Jekyll and Hyde existence. Uh, and I'd met uh, this, my first boyfriend, Dennis. But, but what I didn't um, say was that with Dennis came all my first gay friends, because up until that time, since I had joined the Navy in 72, um, my, my rules had been no gay friends, no boyfriends, um, no, no sex with other um, military people, um, but most importantly of all, no gay friends. Uh, and that, had, um, that took a bit of sort of strength of character, although I say it myself, so when I met Dennis, uh, suddenly um, I met all these friends of his. And there were, there were two groups of us, in, in a sense. We overlapped. Uh, one group, there were just um, six of us. And uh, we often, when I escaped up from the Navy in Portsmouth, would go to the Royal Vauxhall Tavern on a Sunday and... Um, um, and on Sundays, there was this most uh, fabulous uh, drag act called um, Adrella, Peter Searle. Um, sadly, no longer with us. And to get to the point uh, today, uh, for, for many years, decades, uh, the only single person out of that group of six left alive um, has been me. Wow. Um, and of the other group, there were 19 of us. And there's three of us left mm. and um, of those two two of us are negative uh, one is our long-term survivor who you know takes combination therapy these days and uh, um, the virus is undetectable um, but the, of the others they all died from HIV with one exception one drowned in the Marchioness which was a riverboat disaster uh, on the Thames in 1989 and uh, but that was a little bit academic um, uh, because um, David David Highfield as his name was uh, was HIV positive uh, anyway and uh, so as many of us thought at that time you know it was a death sentence so it, it, to answer your question exactly as for Jonathan I felt I had a duty to all these incredible, fabulous, predominantly young, but not exclusively so, um, you know, men, predominantly gay, not exclusively so, um, 
who, whose voices were extinguished by this and who had a really rough ride often, except on those who were there to, um, to be there for them, um, uh, to care for them. And thank God there were many. Uh, and London Lighthouse, which um, um, mentioned um, in the documentary, and in actual fact, um, it was in the Ian McKellen room, which is the sort of main hall there, that my recording was made um, and uh, by, by Ben and Steve. Um, so, yes, I did it for them and for others to learn. This is something which must never be forgotten. And, and that's important because the way we tackled it at the time, and I'm not talking about the government, but the, the, the community and all those scientists and all those doctors and nurses who uh, were there and, and who, who weren't scared, um, all those people um, played the most important role uh, in ensuring ultimately that, um, um, that these individuals died um, with care and love, even if they were on their own, they had been deserted as they often were by their families, that there was someone there sat with them, holding them, cuddling them, um, being there uh, for them. And that that story of all that uh, coping and fighting and campaigning and research is not forgotten because it's an important to tell a story of a community and how it, the community, rose up and said, um, we'll take this into our own hands. And um, there is so much that future generations, by looking back at this time, can learn about how um, it's, there's always a solution. There's always a way through. Never give up hope. Um, uh, you will get through. Thank you. I, I think that comes across in the film. That's the last thing I'll say, and then I'll let some of the others here <laughs> pitch in. Um, the film carries this beautiful tone of of loss and grief and mourn, but also hope and perseverance. And my question for, I guess, especially first for Stephen Ben is, was there any sort of plan when you were interviewing these people to construct this sort of a specific message, or do you just turn on the cameras and the microphones and then just deal with let people speak their hearts and whatever came out, that is your story. We spent a long time getting to know the people we, you know, we interviewed. Um, I felt like we became part of their lives and the most important thing for them and for us is for them to trust because these mm. people, they're going to be sharing their stories, not just with us, but with a wider audience. So, like I said, we spent a long time with them. And when it came to devising the questions, the questions were there for, for, for the foundation, but what was important was for the people we interviewed to bring their stories. So if they didn't want to answer the, what, any other or a question, like, that was fine. But the questions were there, and the, those questions were about the foundation, and for them to bring their stories. And... You know, and that to me, like I just said, was built on trust because it's really, really important when you go in front of the camera, when you're sharing a story, is trust and to feel safe. And 
Yeah, if I can just um, add as well that uh, Ben's um, doing himself down a little bit here, but, uh, you know, Ben, you were so good because he devised all the questions and, as I say, we got to know everyone and when we actually came to film, we had hours and hours because people wanted to talk because I think if you're going to talk about something as sensitive as this, like Ben said, the the person being interviewed has to trust you. And I think that came through because we had, yeah. in fact, I spent a month of hardly any sleep with all this footage. And it was like, I want to use every bit, but we can't have a six-hour epic, you know. We've got to cut this from, like, 24 hours down to one and a half hours. And... That was the most difficult bit. But, yeah, I wanted the story to be told, no glossy or whatever, as it was. And that was very important. And, and, and I think that came across in the film. Yeah, yeah, it is heavy going, but this was heavy stuff, you know. And, and um, yeah, so to answer your question, we did. We... Yeah, we did have the part where where it had to be. It had to be organic. Mm-hmm. It had to be from the heart. Otherwise, it wasn't going to work. This this is a no warts, whatever account, and it is heavy going in places, but mm-hmm. it's essential because then people understand. You know, uh, yeah. yeah. I was just going to say we're not just telling the stories of the people we've interviewed but many others exactly and many others who are not here and you know the people who we interviewed they're talking about people that they've lost it's their stories as well exactly this is this is a tribute to everyone um who supported people living with hiv everything you know it it it, those people in the interview they echo thousands of similar stories and and that you know they're almost the spokesman if you like for many 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 similar stories and and this is a tribute to everyone i I just want to just add those people who who we interviewed and then say you know patrick and jonathan i'm we both are really really proud of them Mm. every one of them has done really really well Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. Yes. It was. I mean, it was true. If I can interject, that that that, you know, Stephen Ben, you know, spent lots of time, particularly with me. I can only speak from my experience, um, of just you know getting to know me, and I felt very safe um, in terms of, uh, and I trusted them. and I think, you know, that was what was important, that they, you know, gave one the space to tell your story. And it, to me, it was a really important story in terms that it hadn't been done. There was lots of, of, of films and documentaries um, based on the American experience, but there was absolutely nothing about the UK's um, epidemic. Um, and it was almost as though it had been forgotten. And I always felt that it was something that was really important, that, that, that people know our history, know the history of, of, of HIV um, and how we were 
in a way, you know, um, certainly as, as a gay man, we were attacked. I mean, the, 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 the way that the sort of the, the press, the right-wing press, mm. you know, just said that we had brought it on ourselves, you know, um, we deserved it. I mean, it was, it, was, it was horrendous. It was absolutely horrendous. But as I say, we were fortunate that we had a national health service. We were also fortunate in terms that, that we actually had um, a remarkable sort of health secretary in, in Norman Fowler, um, who understood that this was a virus and that it could affect anybody. And that really is what was important because there was so much misinformation about it, you know, just being this gay plague. Mm. And that was nonsense. And uh, he actually sort of um, managed to persuade Margaret Thatcher to put a vast sum of money into not only um, this famous or, for me, infamous um, advertisement, you know, don't die of ignorance, uh, which I actually thought created more fear and was the basis of a whole lot of stigma <laughs> as opposed to, to education. Mm. But you have to remember that that there were no computers, there were no mobile phones. So it wasn't easy to 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 get in and to share information. Um but but he managed to persuade her to to put um vast sums of money into also the, the you know to give to the drug companies to make the medication um which eventually was going to sort of uh, to 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 help save us um and that was something that was really special and then at the same time he also arranged for money to be put into places like london lighthouse which was just this this absolute sort of bastion of hope um and other drop-in centers so there were a whole range of of drop-in centers um where you could go and you could get information um help with benefits just just help with living health with with housing i mean all a, a multitude of, of 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 places where one could get support and and that needed to be documented and so you know ben and steve's documentary did it and actually, I mean, you know, as a tribute to them, um, there's just been this wonderful series called It's a Sin. Mm. And, you know, their documentary was shown to the actors so that they had an understanding wow. of what it was that, that people were living through. And I think there can be no better tribute to, uh, to them for having made it, because I think it's a really, really important documentary. Absolutely. If I could back up Jonathan on that, um, and I think probably um, Jonathan would agree with me, um, we, this was a labour of, of love for um, Ben and Steve, and, and during the, the, the process of getting it onto the screen, it, it wasn't an, an easy uh, task, and um, their commitment was throughout was quite incredible. Um, from the early sort of days, I first met them on a cold um, evening um, at the British Film Institute outside because uh, um, uh, uh, they were smoking like troopers. 
I don't smoke. He does. I just made that for him. That's smoking. It was going to be. Luckily, the sort of the cafe there has an outdoors area underneath an arch of. I can't remember which bridge it is, but I think it's Waterloo Bridge. Waterloo. Yes. And so it's going to be about half an hour, and about two and a half hours later, by which time my sort of various parts of my anatomy had sort of forgotten what other parts they were connected to. And this was the start of it. But they have become very close friends. And Steve phoned me the other night. There's nothing which I enjoy more. Uh, uh, you could always hear Ben in the background, keeping a sort of a, a listening ear on proceedings. Um, and there's nothing uh, I like more than uh, Steve picking up the phone. I'm very lazy. Steve always does it. Um, and the pair of us get, you know, get off on cackling away like sort of uh, like like two sort of sort of uh, um, OAP parrots. Um, all manner of, of totally outrageous things. But so that's been an enormous benefit for me. But it was the perseverance uh, to, to get this to screen. And it, yes, it's, it, there hadn't been anything like it before. As Jonathan said, there were um, various ones which came out of America, you know, understandably, which were well done. But we hadn't had our own voices. Um, you know, uh, out here in the United Kingdom. And it was so important um, that uh, this happened. And, and of course, the, 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 um, um, the Channel 4 series um, um, written, and I think produced by uh, Russell T. Davis, mm-hmm. um, who was the um, originator of Queer as Folk and other fabulous sort of programs uh, here in the United Kingdom, um, he produced this five-part um, um, sort of drama on that time. And uh, so it was one, one a week on Friday evenings. And I think the last one showed um, last Friday. But having watched um, the first one, we were then hooked. And we had to watch them all through on successive evenings. And I kind of knew what was coming up in the last one, where one of the key characters were, was unwell, uh, had had sort of been taken back home um, by his parents, who his mother certainly really didn't understand, and it was all about her. I think the father did understand in the end, and uh, he died. And um, um, I went. No spoilers. No spoilers. Normally, you can be after something. Well, look, if you haven't seen it, I hope you do. Um, but I, I wept, and my, my husband um, just sensed that um, something strange was about to happen. And he just he, he got up, and he just came behind me, and he just held me. By, whilst I wept for all these, all these people, all these voices who were no longer um, here, uh, and um, I was incredibly moved by that. And I can remember thinking... After eighty two, paved the way for that. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Liam, you want to go ahead and? Yeah. In in the documentary, Doctor Whitaker mentioned he'd lost 50, 40 to fifty people, and gone to so many funerals. Um, my question is to Jonathan: You were diagnosed very early, and in October eighty two, I think you said. 
Yeah. And um, do you, you've must have lost a lot of people yourself. And I wonder, do you, do you suffer with survivor's guilt? It's interesting. I, I think for a while I did. Yeah. Um, but there actually sort of comes a point that you just think, no, I've just got to get on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I found, you know, I was, we're really fortunate in, in this country that, that we do have a kind of sort of social security. So there's kind of, you are financially supported. Yeah. Um, and so what I felt was that, that since I was basically being given a salary by the state, um, I was able to be well enough to go and volunteer at, at, at various sort of um, um, various centres, drop-in centres, so that I was able to sort of give back, or I felt that I was giving back um, to the community yeah. um, for the support that the, the government had, uh, had given me. Um, and I think that because of doing that, because of, of being able to sort of offer a, a, a helping hand, I used to work on reception at, at a place called the Landmark, uh, which was a, a, a wonderful drop-in centre in South London. Um, I used to drive for Food Chain, which delivered food to uh, to people um, on a, a a weekend. I would do it on a weekend. They actually did it every every day of the week. Um, so there were just various ways of of making sure that 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 actually be, because I was doing that, I gradually felt less and less yeah um, the survivor's guilt. Um, but it's still I I am still kind of amazed and 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 i don't understand why i have been fortunate that i have survived uh when so many others yeah haven't um so at times it's difficult but but no you know there came a point that that it just wasn't it wasn't helpful yeah yeah this is more of a question um for the two directors how long did it take to to, to make this documentary because it's because there are so many people uh, involved in this that it must have spanned a decent uh, amount of time throughout i feel um ages yeah. it took a long time <laughs> <I think>. yeah. <laughs> yeah a really long time i think now to this point it's probably about seven and a half years wow wow yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of that was from the actual like we're gonna make a we're gonna make documentary it. to now. It's about seven and a half yeah. years. Wow. Spending yeah. time getting to know people, <coughs> research, mm. all that stuff. Yeah, a real yeah. long time. And yeah, yeah. I, I was just gonna just say I remember having a flashback. Now, when we uh, somebody helped us, I'm not going to name them. They they were rather generous, and it's when they said, "Oh, we're gonna help you." And me being a big crybaby got very oh. tearful and was crying. You started, everyone started crying. But I'll tell you why. Is then I realised how important this project was, but also how much we both cared about everyone. And then the responsibilities that just not the people we were interviewing, but 
those their loved ones who are no longer here mm-hmm. and that's how you just felt the weight right wow the responsibility that, yeah that that yeah. that was a responsibility but i mean if this had taken another seven years we would we, still have done it because there was no way this documentary was not going to be finished. no we had to had to and, get it out there i mean our sticking point as well was um the getty archives um they are very expensive. They're like a hundred pounds a second. Um, wow. And it was like, oh, how are we going to fix this? <laughs> and thankfully to the person who, who Ben has just mentioned and another organisation, um, it, it was quite surreal because we were like, how the hell are we going to get this money? Yeah. And we just met this person for a cup of coffee and said, how much do you need? So we said, well, you know, whatever. Um, and he said, leave it with me. And like within a week, we had the money to finish the film. And that was incredible. But it's, the, the, I think the motto is that you just never give up. Where, where, where there is a will, there is a way. We will find it, you know, but, uh, but you just have to keep knocking. And finally we did. And just, but I was just going to say, when you interviewed, you know, the people that we've interviewed and you see the tears, you hear the stories and you feel the memories and you more probably feel the pain, you think, excuse me, language, I'm going to swear. said, so, f*** it, we're going to do whatever we can to get this story Absolutely. out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Edit that swear word out. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if you want it out, I'll put it out. If you want it in, I'll leave yeah, it in. I, I, <laughs> I, I do have to say that, Patrick, your interview, um, we had this, uh, it's Ben's cousin. Yeah, my, my relation, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. No, it, it well, was my his cousin's wife, wife yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, not boasting or whatever, but, you know, she's interviewed a lot of famous people. And when the interview finished, she said, oh, my God, my God, she said, I've done so many interviews with all these famous people, she said, but I am completely overwhelmed with this interview. She said, it is the most beautiful interview I have ever done. I do have to say that I was hiding behind Ben while we were doing it because Patrick had me in tears as well. Um, It was just, you know, you have to try and sort of, you know, I'm making a film here. We've got to be, but you can't. You can't. The, the stories are just so. And um, yeah, that was wasn't it? Yeah, was, but there's been uh, there's been a lot of laughter as well. There has been a lot. There has been. Whether it's tragedy, there is a lot of humour. I've got to. I, I just want to add though that the London Lighthouse. Um, it, it, Jonathan and, and Patrick will know what I'm I'm talking about um, here, but. I can't explain it. There's just something about the lighthouse. And it's... I don't know what the word is, but I I used to um, work for Freedom Cars, which some of you may have heard of. It was the first gay cab firm in, in the UK. And we had the contract to take the people to and from the hospital. And very often I would get there early and they'd say, oh, go and talk to the guys, you know, and, and you'd sit there. 
and it would be like everything was you know going on in brackets normal you know outside but in there it it there was turmoil but it was just so very tranquil and you would sit there with the guys and then I don't know sometimes I would just it would hit me and it'd be like my god there is nothing I can do you know I, I can't do anything and obviously I didn't know I was going to make a film then but I thought one day, you know, these people have to be remembered. And, um, yeah, and, and I will tell you quickly, because this always has stuck with me, this, this, this lad, I mean, I was 30-something at the time, and he wasn't much, well, he was younger than me, actually. And I took him, and the poor lad had, had you know, he, he'd had so much medication, but... I said, come on, mate, let's get in the car. And, and we got him in the car, got him down to the hospital. But on the way back, it just stuck with me. We were stuck in traffic and he projectile vomited. That wasn't, yeah, I didn't, because we, you know, we could get the cars cleaned and everything. But yeah. it was just the fact that he then decided he was going to get out and clean it up. And I was like, no, 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 stay there. So you can imagine this guy who, bless him, was in the middle of Earl's Court Road, and I thought, if one person says anything, I'll go ballistic. Fortunately, no one said anything, and I managed to get him back in the car, and his partner was there when we got him back. But then, three days later, he was dead, and that's how it was. And you'd very often... I can't recall a day that I went to this place and there wasn't, like, you know, the black fans called up to and and they'd always have a candle going and but it's only now that you think back but at the time you just do it and 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 you would get there and they'd say oh yes so and so went went last night and it almost got it wasn't blase but it's like you have to just maintain the okay you know, there's other people, we've got to carry on. And it's only afterwards, <clears throat> and I have to say, for me personally, I I used to think about it every day because I never forgot that chat. I never forgot that. And, 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 and other people, but that stuck in my head. But making this film has somehow, for me, I, I, I've, I've given something back. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I've given yeah, something back, and I—it's I, not that I don't want to think about it or whatever, but I'm more content with myself now that I've done something for these guys. And you acknowledged it. I've acknowledged it. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I guess. Sorry, I, yeah. right, right. I, if I may, just on behalf of the team, I'd like to just echo the sentiments that were said about um, Patrick's interview. I think we all found Patrick's interview to be profoundly moving in, 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 in the story. It was, um, I, I think it, in, in the way it was distributed within the documentary, it was a bit, it was a bit condensed and self-contained. And I think we, as, as a result, that we, we really... Um, there's a great deal of of it's a beautiful story to to, to begin with, uh, but but then adding to that, just it was just it was just I just wanted to react over it as powerful, and I think it moved us. Yeah, I know I know Ethan, I know you and I exchanged some messages based on that. Yeah, um, before we started filming, my mom my mom's been watching the documentary today, 
um, just now. And right before we started recording, she got to Patrick's interview and she sent me a message about five minutes in just going, I'm crying. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to say, both Patrick and Jonathan's stories were the ones that hit me the most. I think they were the most. They were the ones when Ian told me that we were having you guys. I can't not jump for joy, but I was. These were the two people that I wanted to to listen to more the most because they were both such stories that either resonated or just hit me in a way that I hadn't. Yeah, I I, I didn't get to learn much about this, and it was it was great to see this from two people that I never would have been able to hear this from. You're very kind. I had a question for Patrick as well, based on your interview from the documentary. You mentioned that when you lost Dennis you were taught how to cope from your experience in the Navy and um, you said about the kind of grieving process that you went through and how you then decided to go into activism but was there ever a time later down the line where you felt like you wanted to go back to the Navy or work with the Navy in any way? Of course at the time um, it was a criminal offence to be um, gay and in the Royal Navy and so uh, for, for many years, I'd been, you know, I, I, as I said, having to live a Jack in the Hyde existence. And certainly the time that I was with Dennis, if he came down from Croydon to stay uh, with me, which he did most weekends, um, if we were out in a restaurant, um, I'd always have to sit where I could see the door, just in case, you know, perchance one of my brother or, or sister officers came in. And um, so I, I didn't want to leave the Navy. It was a, you know, it was a choice between who was more, more important, um, Dennis or, or the Navy. So having uh, left, um, I, I then became um, a bit of an activist and uh, in 93 joined an organisation called Rank Outsiders, which was the LGBT plus support organisation for um, military people, predominantly those who'd been chucked out um, of the um, British Armed Forces. And um, the following year, I became the chair. And then with our um, uh, lobby and uh, LGBT rights organisation called Stonewall, um, we, um, and and a group called the Armed Forces Legal Challenge Group, um, we decided to campaign uh, for the ban on people like me to be lifted. And uh, so we, we did that through the 90s um, and in the end took the government uh, through a judicial process and um, which went through the high courts and to the Court of Appeal and Master of the Rolls' Court uh, and then leapfrogged over um, our highest court, which in those days was the um, House of Lords, uh, we now have a Supreme Court, uh, and into the European Court of Human Rights, where in September 99, the government was found in default of two articles, in criminal default, um, and was required to lift the ban, which they did in uh, mid-January 2000. So um, I, I probably wouldn't have been welcome um, back military at that time because uh, you know I was co-leading this this, this fight yeah. um, successful and the ban went and um, today um, diversity inclusivity equality are very important uh, aspects of um, the British armed forces um, 
interestingly, um, there was a time, it was must have been about 2004, where I was the British uh, government spokesperson at a, um, a conference in, at Georgetown University in, in Washington on Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which mm-hmm. had been that the fudge which, um, uh, which Clinton, unfortunately, had had to um, concede to. And um, um, that was an interesting sort of uh, trip to, to, to Washington. And uh, I, I met uh, the, the equivalent of rank outsiders, uh, the, the, men, uh, the, the American uh, equivalent, and uh, who I think were called the, um, um, the, the Military Defense League or, or something like that. Um, they're now called the Modern Military Association of America. And it was quite obvious that um, the ban would eventually go in America as well, uh, hadn't that time. And, uh, you know, I, I had sort of um, meetings with senators and their, their staff, their young military staff. Every senator has uh, a military aide, uh, normally a, um, a, um, a youngish sort of uh, major or... Um, um, lieutenant commander uh, or equivalent, uh, people who are judged to be going places, and it's uh, they spend two years to 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 learn politics on the hill, um, and then they return to their military duties, and uh, um, it it, it uh, puts them in good stance when they um, they become senior officers in the future. So uh, yes, the sort of a jog and roll in in helping America come along there, um, but. No, I've moved on. I, I would have loved to have returned. It was a career I didn't want to uh, leave. And ironically, today I'm, I'm chair of uh, uh, a British charity called uh, Fighting with Pride. Um, we are the um, LGBT charity in the United Kingdom. And um, we, we left a lot of people behind um, in the year 2000 when the ban went uh, it, almost, uh, you know, two generations of people who'd been handed out of their, their careers. They'd, they'd been found out. I never was. Um, they'd, um, um, they'd sometimes been court-martialed. Um, they'd had medals um, ripped off their chest. Uh, interestingly, in the United Kingdom just this past week, um, the government has announced the return of those medals, and that's part of the work oh, we've been doing with good. fighting with pride. Anyhow, um, as you will be learning, um, I can, if given an open mic, I can keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When we were filming this, I think, um, um, I can't actually remember whether it was film stock or video, but whatever it was, I I can remember the tape running out uh, at one (laughs) stage and we're having to go back and redo part of it. I will draw a, um, a zip across my mouth and... Uh, hand back to you, to Ian. Well, we certainly don't have anybody on this side of the table who could be accused of the same thing, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, On that note, um, really for anybody involved in the panel today, um, in the accounts we heard, there seemed to be a theme where after diagnosis, um, there was a tendency to try and shut oneself away, to to confine yourself to almost a person of, of, of your own creation. And it seemed it was so important to try and reestablish uh, these new diagnoses into the community, often through things like activism mm-hmm. as a sort of a method to uh, 
sort of, I don't know if it's to establish camaraderie. I don't know if it's part of entering a new community. I don't know if it's trying to make the world a better place with, with I, I guess, the feeling of, of a time that, that that's, that's remaining. I don't know if anybody would just speak to the idea of how important it is to ensure that um, these new diagnoses remain part of a community to make sure that they know that they're cared for and loved. Well, I think it is. I think I think that, that that's, you know, something which is really, really important. And one of the sad things is that there are so many of these so-called drop-in centres. I mean, for instance, the London Lighthouse no longer exists. Um, and it no longer exists because, of course, um, one got to a point where there was medication, there was effective, or there is effective medication. Um, and so um, people were not requiring um, the amount of hospice space um, as had been needed and required and, and, and that, the, uh, that the London Lighthouse gave, gave succor to um, as, the, as the epidemic kind of sort of changed. So as the medications came forward. But I think it is really, really important um, that, that, you know, you receive your diagnosis. For me, you know, I, I received my diagnosis and literally, I mean, I, I kind of went back to, to, to the flat where I lived in the East End and I did kind of shut the door and I didn't get in touch with friends and it was it was just really 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 difficult um but i made a conscious decision um basically in april 1983 that i was going to to do something that would bring me back into a community um and actually the the act of doing that completely changed my life and I think those things are important. And that was what was so important about these drop-in centres, these places where you could go, where you could feel safe, you could get information, uh, you could get support and create support networks. Um, and that was, was the way that, 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 that people kind of, you know, one is able to grow and develop. So I think it's 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 really really important, but it's it's not easy, and it's not easy because there is, you know, this thing which is which is called stigma, uh, and it's it's very real. It's very difficult to actually kind of quantify, but it is very very real, and it is about sort of, you know, communities' attitudes towards you know, HIV. And one of the problems, I think, is that it was always kind of presented as being a sexually transmitted uh, disease, illness. And of course, it isn't. I mean, yes, it can be. But it's a blood-borne virus. Um, and therefore, you know, any time that there is a possibility for someone who is infected to, to share in some ways their blood and whether that's sort of you're a, a, um, a, a drug addict and fixing and sharing needles or doctors and nurses sort of get a needle prick um, injury or what have you, 
um, that is sort of, you know, always a possibility of, of someone sort of, you know, getting infected. But as I say, because it was considered to be sexually transmitted, you know, this country has never been good in dealing with sex <laughs> and sexual acts. And uh, then you had this whole situation with this Thatcher government who then produced something which was called Section 28. And Section 28 stated that um, you couldn't um, basically um, teach children in school about homosexuality. And the moment that you do that, you cut off a whole area of sex education, you know, not just dealing around consent, because, of course, if you're not talking about homosexuals, how can you be talking about consent? Because there are whole areas that you can't even talk about, you know. Um, so it, it, was, it, was, it was a really sort of, you know, retrogressive step. And again, what that did was that it stopped people being able to get information that was actually life-saving and would have been life-saving to understand about sort of, uh, about sort of you know, protection. Um, so it's, 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 yeah, it, 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 it kind of, it was, it was, it was crazy because it made it really difficult, you know, to be able to sort of get this education into schools because it is really important that, that people learn and are taught about, you know, sort of sexual acts you know, sexual diseases, therefore where they can go to, to, to get help, to get information, get cured. Um, so, yes, yes. Sorry, I'm, I started around. All right, all right. <laughs> and, a, and a fabulous one as well. <laughs> We're quite used to rants on our podcast. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> going, back to what, going back to what Jonathan was just saying, I was a child of that era. And sex education, you're right, had nothing to do with any of that. And we were taught nothing of that. So we had no idea. I didn't have no idea about anything until I got into my teens and mid-teens, basically. That doesn't get lifted till 2003, I think. Yeah. So that's all all self-discovery of finding out stuff, you know, and having a curiosity about stuff. But yeah, back then we had no education on it whatsoever. So, yeah. Sadly, there still is stigma, you know, in the United Kingdom. Um, there's still ignorance, and we've we've almost, in some areas, re- regressed in terms of um, young people don't know about HIV um, uh, nowadays, and of course, it's no. still very much um, there. Um, could I just make one sort of mention of of our hemophilia community because they were one of the the, the, the groups who also were terribly affected by HIV. And um, our, our haemophiliac community over the years, virtually all of them, um, you know, succumbed to um, HIV uh, in the end through um, Factor 7, the, the additional clotting agent which they used to have. And uh, there was a bit of a cover-up, um, allegedly, um, about what had happened, and uh, that's still playing its way out uh, in, in Britain. Um, 
there were so many people um, who were affected um, by this. Extraordinary. Uh, if, if I may, Patrick, uh, something you mentioned, actually, it reminds me of something that Martin Butler said, where uh, he felt that because of the success of medication treatments today, there seems to be a lack of maybe fear is the right word about that AIDS can still be a killer An urgency and was sort of predicting the potential that there could, that it could be possible for a second wave of of, of, of an HIV ep- epidemic in this country. I just kind of was trying to run the throat of the panel. Is there any, any thoughts on that matter? We have in the UK a, a name, um, well, certainly for the UK, if, if not the world, um, to see HIV near eradicated by the year 2030. Um, it's, we're not there yet. Um, I don't think that we would ever see... Um, another surge or a wave, there there is always the danger of people not being educated and therefore taking um, risks which they don't need to. Um, That There are many safety nets now, of course, and it can be, I think, uh, in a philosophic sense, a a difficult argument sometimes uh, insofar as that uh, uh, if you are HIV positive, it is possible um, to, uh, with, with drug conform, conformity, um, to, to live pretty much a near life, um, the same span of, of years uh, that you would hope to. Um, it, it's still, um, and, you know, Jonathan may be a better person to sort of comment on this, but having lived, you know, as a, as a gay man through all of this and into this into this era, um, it's not something which you should um, be flippant about that you would probably wish to live with. Um, If for whatever reason you do become um, HIV positive, it is still possible to, you know, as everyone knows, you know, to to live a healthy, totally fulfilling uh, life uh, and uh, uh, with your... Um, viral load being undetectable and um, with the virus itself being undetectable, um, you know, not even be able to pass it on to other people. Um, we have something called PEP and we have something called PrEP. So uh, post-exposure prophylaxis um, or pre-exposure prophylaxis. And um, um, these are important tools in a large construct to to remove the scourge of HIV from the world, you know, permanently. The difficulty is that 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 you know it's fine for 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 us in in particularly sort of you know I can only speak for for the United Kingdom. We have a national health service, as I say, so one has access to to to, to medication. But the realities are that the medications, because of the patents that the, the, the big pharma put on their, their, their products, uh, means that, that they're beyond the reach of a great many people. Um, and we've got this whole situation, for instance, with COVID. Um, and unhappily, um, AstraZeneca, which is um, the, 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 uh, the, the vaccine that... Um, 
the Oxford people have uh, have produced. Um, they are going to be selling it at cost or less than cost price to um, most of the world, where people sort of, you know, would not be able to necessarily afford the cost, for instance, of, of what Pfizer may be charging. And these are, you know, things that the, the economics of the medication um, really does need to be taken into account. And it's great that, that there are there are a whole number of, of generic drugs which are used and are far less expensive than the, uh, the branded ones. But, but it's, it, it is a real problem. And certainly, you know, there is an aspiration that by 2030 that there should be no new transmissions of HIV in this country. But it's an aspiration. And unless the government are to get behind it, um, um, that may well disappear. You know, for, for, for many years... Um, HIV had become this forgotten epidemic because there was there was medication. Um, it just wasn't talked about. You know, people were not dying in the numbers that they had been dying, you know, back in the early 80s. Um, and so it had actually become forgotten. And there was a project that, that, that I'm a part of that's, that started in Bristol, um, which was to actually bring HIV back, you know, into people's consciousness. Well, of course, this television uh, drama, It's a Sin, has done that. And suddenly, kind of, we're right there. But the difficulty is that, again, you know, because of this notion that it's sexually transmitted, which is just a nonsense, only sexually transmitted, um, you know, it, it got forgotten and people are testing left, right and centre for COVID, rightly so, because actually COVID is far more vicious than HIV ever was. HIV was slow burn, whereas COVID just, you know, within three, five weeks, you can be done. I mean, so, so but it is a virus. So what is important is that people test so that you know your status. And I think that that that, that is something that, that is really, really crucial, that this message gets out, that it can be a manageable disease, but it can only be manageable if people know their status, because once you know your status, then you can protect yourself and your partners by starting on effective medication, getting your viral load undetectable, and therefore after six months, you cannot pass the virus. But that, again, is also a really important message that, that, that people need to know. And just one more question. How do you guys get Dominic West? Somebody, you see, somebody said to us, and, and this is a, a, a great philosophy, I think, yeah, that people, people said to us, how do you get these people? I said, simple, you ask them. But a lot of people would be like, no, you can't ask them. No, you got that. to. You have to. Because, you have to. Yeah. And what can they say? Yes, no, or they ignore you. No, I was just thinking, like, I mean, there's something like 16 million plus now people that have watched It's a Sin. 
And that's almost a third of the country, give or take, yeah. a little bit. And you think, that's an awful lot of people. It is. And I think the reason that it's been um, uh, so popular is because you can read a book, but then you can really read a book. And I think a lot of people knew about it. And if you weren't directly involved, it's like, oh, yes, isn't it awful? Yeah, no, no. And you carry on, unless you're directly involved. And now all these years on, there is this this drama and people, and oh my God, I never knew this happened. And I don't know whether it's, I don't know whether guilt's the right word, but it's like, oh my God, I should have known this. You know, we lived through this and I didn't realise. And I just don't know whether that is, I mean, because it's just phenomenal. I mean, that's a third of the country. And now a third, and, and like um, Jonathan said, that, uh, you know, suddenly it, it's all back again. And and this time people are learning what, what actually happened. And I don't know, it's, it's, it was just, it crossed my mind the other day. And I just thought maybe it's some sort of, you know, they just didn't realise. And now they do. Some sort of, but they didn't realise because they didn't know. Because yeah. they the education. That, that was it. You know, I mean, but your documentary made a huge difference because, you know, people could access the actual history. Yeah. So yeah. those of us that had, had, had lived through it, had been affected by it, you know, were able to speak and to be able to share that and and that is amazing. That is really important. And like I said, you know, it was it was after eighty two that the whole of the cast of, of It's a Sin got to see. Yeah. And I just wanted to add when we did a screening and QA at Leeds Picture Playhouse, is it? Uh, Hyde Park Picture House. Hyde Park Picture yeah. House yeah. up in Leeds. And there was a young fella, 18-year-old, and at the Q&A, he said, I didn't know about this. So thank yeah. you, um, Henry. I'll put his name out there. Give he's Henry great. a plug. <laughs> Give yeah. Henry a plug. <laughs> and um, really, you know, he said, I didn't know about this. So he said, thank you. And that's really, you know, it's not just, you know, it's down to you, you guys that, you know, making the world a better place for the next generation of LGBT kids. Um, it feels like we blinked and an hour has come and gone. And we definitely be respectful of uh, everybody's time. I was wondering, uh, Steve and Ben, do you want to tell everybody where they can access the documentary? Which, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the documentary, please go see the documentary. It's too important a story not to take in. Yeah, sure. It's it's available on BFI. It's at BFI Player. It's available on Amazon Prime. Um, or you can basically go to our website, um, which is eighty two films. Uh, yeah, eighty two. I had to think for a minute, didn't I? Eighty two films and slash downloads. And that will give you all of the, the the channels that it is available on. And there is something else in the pipeline. I cannot tell you about that at the moment. Oh, oh. Allowed you should have a podcast. That's what we call a tease. That's yeah. very well done. Uh, <laughs> we thought we were going to have a skip there. It, yeah. Um, yeah. It, yeah. 
anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> moving on. Um, no, but it's very special, and we think people are gonna, yeah, they'll like it. And just to say, um, we're also researching for our next documentary. Um, again, get that which is very again, it's um, it's concentrated, concentrated on women and um. Yeah, it's very relevant, and it's the first time uh, me, as a little gay boy, um, have has ever approached women and been meeting up with women. So it's all very a first for you. It's dear. a first. It's exciting, and that. And I think I've failed in the field of attempting, you know, straight sort of heterosexuality. But no, they're really brilliant, brilliant women, and we're really, really excited. And that stick to the game. Right? Yes. Yeah, you'll be <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Well, we couldn't be more thankful for everybody's time to Steve and to Ben and Sir Jonathan to Patrick. Thank you, Thank you. so much for, for giving your time on a, late on a Sunday evening to, to talk about the documentary of us during LGBT plus history month. Yeah. Definitely an important time and an important time to, to have this conversation and therefore why we wanted to get it done before this month is over. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure, thank you. It was, it was a genuine honor uh, yeah. for me. I, I was going to say at some point, as I'm, I'm, I'm a bisexual guy, and I know nothing about this, and it's something that I feel kind of, kind of disappointed in myself for never learning. It was never something that was taught, um, and I think at least now I feel a lot more lucky to be able to grow up now, knowing that this is something that's not been dealt with, but been seen as an actual issue, and I can feel a bit safer throughout the rest of my life. Okay. Thank you. And well, thanks to people like Jonathan and Patrick who, Absolutely. who paved the way and fought loads of battles. So thank you. Absolutely. To you thank you very much. Bye-bye, guys. <laughs> and Ethan, give, give my regards to your mother. You've got a fan club. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you very much, folks. It's been an absolute inspiration. It really, absolutely, really has. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your story. And thank you so much for your candor here today. Oh, well, thank you for giving us a voice. Oh, yeah. happy to. Happy yeah, to. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely something we wanted to, when we, we saw it, we like, definitely want to get involved with this. So it, it was, yeah. And we definitely want to be kept abreast of what this next project yeah, is. Yeah, stay in touch. <laughs> stay in touch. Yeah, yeah, Most definitely. Okay, yeah. excellent, well, excellent. We've got another one after that, but that's, that's for... Oh, he, look at he's, yeah. going, he's, he's going two levels deep with me. What's this about? Oh, <laughs> so, it was really lovely to meet you. It guys. was so fantastic yeah, to meet you guys. Genuine oh, pleasure. And thank you for having us. Yeah. And thank you for your support. And Seriously, you. you're all legends. Oh, you're brilliant. Thank you very much. Very kind thank of you. Thank you all. <laughs> please stay in touch. Please, please, please stay in touch. Absolutely. Keep us posted. All right. Thank you. And have a good week. You too. Bye, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Take care. So once again, a massive thank you to Steve Keeble and Ben Lord, directors, and uh, also to Jonathan Blake and Patrick Lister-Todd for uh, joining us for a powerful hour. Oh, it really was, yeah. So for Best Film Ever. The Power Hour. The Power Hour. <laughs> so for Best Film Ever, I've been Ian. I've been Liam. I've been Ellie. And I've been Ethan. And we'll catch you on the Flippity Flop. The Flippity Flop.
use these snippets. You can use it's these up snippets. to you. I'm, oh, I'm, trust me, I'm already making notes in my head about the ones I can. Yeah. <laughs> I don't listen anything. That we don't don't turn anything off. That's the secret. <laughs> there have been so many times you've been recording, and it just gets added to the added to the cut at the end of my. I don't remember saying. That. It was like, oh, it was off. It was off mic. And, and I've only had two glasses. Of wine. Like after the third. There's the secret. A well a well lubricated um oh, interview. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm glad you emphasized the lubrication. <laughs> That's so the coda. <laughs> <laughs> 